Welcome to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. They get the credit, we ask the questions. This is Credit Hour. On today's episode of Credit Hour, we speak with Congressman Dusty Johnson, a USD alumnus and South Dakota's lone representative in the U.S. House. Congressman Johnson, how's it going today? Well, anytime you get to talk about the yo, it's a good day, right? <laughs> For sure. Um, you know, we, we want to talk about your life and career a little bit. But, you know, my first question is, what's the typical day of a congressperson like? Well, it's, it's too busy, to be honest with you. I mean, the one thing about Washington is, is they often confuse activity with progress. I mean, everybody is trying to shove uh, 10 pounds of activity into a five-pound bag. So you have a lot that oozes out and, and maybe doesn't get packaged the way it should. Uh, I generally – now, the work day out in the East Coast isn't 8 to 5. It's uh, 9 to 6. I didn't know that until I had uh, spent more time out there. So most folks probably get to the office between 8.30 and 9 on the Hill. I generally try to get there about 7.30 or 8 because that's a really good time to go over all the letters that uh, constituents send in. We get about 5,000 a month. And I can't read all the emails and letters, but I do try to sign uh, as many of them as I can. Uh, in the mornings, when, when people aren't, there's a good uh, time to get that done. Uh, generally, there are lots of meetings with constituents. I mean, in any given week, there might be 50 or 100 South Dakotans out in Washington in groups of five or ten, and I try to meet with every one of them who are out there. The mornings are generally committee hearings. I'm on the Agriculture Committee and then the Education and Labor Committee. Uh, both those committees are really good fits for me, and, and frankly, they're good fits for South Dakota. And then the afternoon is generally uh, floor votes. You know, we'll vote on anywhere from you know three to maybe ten bills on the floor every day, and hey, that's kind of a fun time to hang out for an hour or an hour and a half on the floor, talk to all my 434 other colleagues. And then the evenings are generally, I mean, I'm at the office reading, uh, briefing materials, trying to get it for the next day. I normally work until about. 10 or 10.30, and then I roll out to have a you know, late dinner at home and, and go to bed, do it all over again the next day. <laughs> well, we definitely want to get into, into more of that, but you know, just to take a step back for a second, you grew up in Pier, the Fort Pier area, correct? Yeah, right. Started school in Fort Pier uh, in elementary school. My parents moved over to the Pier side. That was before the open enrollment uh, you know, environment, and so uh, we, I went to school in Pier, graduated uh, as a TF Riggs governor in 1995, and eventually made my way to USD. Well, what was your early life like? Well, we were a pretty big working class family. We were selling with five kids, my mom and my dad. You know, economically, there were some times that were tough, uh, but I was, in a lot of ways, pretty blessed in that I had a family that loved me, a mom and dad that were both in the picture. I mean, none of us were perfect, but, you know, if you've got a family that's working out for each other, uh, it's a lot easier to kind of work through some of those economic challenges. You know, how do you think it, in- it has influenced your values today? Well, I started thinking about the role of government a lot sooner than most people did. I think just because of the time that we were on, uh, you know, uh, public assistance programs. And if you're walking to the grocery store for your folks to buy food on food stamps, I mean, you are aware of the food stamp program in a way that people who didn't have to worry about that never were aware of of a welfare program. You know, same thing with like uh, reduced and free school lunches. I was just thinking about those programs a lot. And that's kind of a struggle all of us should have in our minds, the kind of question about what is the proper role of government in people's lives. We know we've got to have some kind of a safety net, but I think we also know, uh, to varying degrees, that doing too much for people that they could do for themselves builds a dependence rather than independence. 
So I do think, you know, growing up economically challenged, having tough times, I think it, it caused me to ask those questions sooner than most people probably do in life. You know, you mentioned you would make your way to USD. What made you choose USD? Well, I'd gone to uh, the campus for a few summer camps, so it was familiar to me. There were a few professors on campus that I had interacted with. They did a pretty good job of, of talking to me and trying to make me feel connected to campus. I'd gotten a scholarship. That was back in the era of the Mickelson Scholarship, where South Dakota gave uh, a free ride to students who got certain ACT and, and grade point averages. That scholarship was killed my senior year in high school, and we didn't think that they were going to fund. They did not initially fund it to the people who were going to go to college the next year, so it was kind of pulling the rug out from underneath us. <laughs> but we went up to the legislature. A couple of us really lobbied hard, and they extended the program for one year. So that made an in-school, uh, an in-state, uh, regental school look really, really attractive for a kid who didn't have a lot of money. Wow. So you, like, personally went to Pierre to lobby? <clears throat> well, that's the nice thing about growing up in Pierre is that it was just, I just had to cross <laughs> the street to go from the high school to the state capitol, uh, blew off a couple of class periods. It was the only time I ever played hooky, but blew <laughs> off a couple of class periods to go up and, yeah, talk to legislators one-on-one and make the case about why it was pretty unfair in February of somebody's senior year to take away a you know, full-ride scholarship. Well, I think you turned out all right, uh, despite the, the tardiness. Um, that's a great story. You know, were you a student of Doc Farber? I was, yeah. I mean, Doc was no longer in the classroom uh, as a professor day in and day out, but he was still engaged with the political science department. I was over at his house not infrequently. I mean, it wasn't every week, but it was probably every month. We would sit around and talk. He was a really funny guy. He had a tremendous amount of optimism. And now in politics, it seems like so many people are sour. They're kind of negative. There's a kind of anger or outrage that uh, I don't love in politics. That was never Doc. Doc was never, you know, angry about anything. He uh, would talk about the possibilities and think about the possibilities. He was always uh, really interested in how we could make uh, South Dakota and America better. You know, do you have any favorite memories from your time at USD? Well, specifically with related to Doc, it was just, he was kind of, because he was a funny guy and he didn't put a lot of ears, he would, he would get into odd situations a lot. I mean, he'd, he'd asked me to come over and give him a ride to the political science banquet one year. So I went over, and at this time I had a tiny little Nissan Sentra. It, had, it was only two doors. It had bucket seats. The back seat was tiny. Now, now Doc was not tall, but he was, I mean, he was round. I mean, he was pretty heavy for his size. And he had Larry Pressler, then a United States senator, uh, hanging out and talking to him at his house. And, and Larry wanted to ride over to the banquet, too. Now, Larry's tall. I don't know. He might be 16 or 16. So they come out to get a ride in my car, this tiny little two-door Sentra, and one of the two of them has got to pour themselves into the back seat so the other can be in the front seat. It looked like it looked ridiculous, and that was just Doc, though, right? I mean, he didn't. He was not. He was not ever going to be upset at having to squeeze himself into the back seat. I mean, he just laughed, and, and he and Larry both had a great time. I, what the thing that I loved about USB is how many real personal experiences I could have. I mean, I did graduate work at the University of Kansas. My wife and I both did, and I could walk across campus and not see anyone I knew on this 25 or 30,000 person strong campus. At USD, you can't walk across campus without seeing somebody you know. And that gives you a real sense of community. So like you know everybody, I mean, it's too big for that, 
but you do have an opportunity to build real personal relationships, and that's where you can get just the great, funny experiences. You know, to transition a little bit to your career in public service, um, was your first publicly elected position, it was the public utility commissioner, correct? Yeah, so that was back in 2004, which seems like an eternity ago now. You know, I feel like that's one of those you know, state government roles that's really important that not many people know what they actually do. What, what do public utility commissioners do? Why is it important for our state? Oh, it's incredibly important. I, you know, we've got some things that are a natural monopoly, meaning that uh, competition you know, just won't work. Uh, now, that's true, like, in the electric area. It would not be cheaper to have. Normally, when you've got competitors, it, it brings prices down. But in the electric arena, if we had two sets of wires or three sets of wires to our house and then two or three power plants outside of town rather than just the one serving the community, it would actually be more expensive. Uh, and although ec- economists call that a natural monopoly, because you've got a natural monopoly, you can't, the market can't set prices. Normally, you know, I mean, you don't get to choose what a, a stick of gum costs, and frankly, neither does the guy who owns a gas station. I mean, many buyers and many, many sellers keeps everybody uh, close to honest. In a monopoly, you don't have that pressure. So you've got to have somebody, a regulator, who tries to mimic what a fully functional market would do for pricing and quality. It's really complicated, but it's really important. So these are the folks who are on the front lines of making sure the telecommunications service and uh, energy service uh, is done the right way. Uh, in South Dakota, they also regulate grain elevators, and they also regulate things like you know the siting of uh, pipelines, natural gas and, and crude oil pipelines. So a lot of pretty important work there. You know, do you enjoy campaigning? I, I mentioned this just because, you know, during your last, uh, this last cycle when you ran for Congress, I felt like I saw you absolutely everywhere. If you, if there was a game, a fair, I mean, you were like there, um, shaking hands, talking to people. I mean, do you kind of enjoy that aspect of, of public service? Yeah, I do. And a lot of people, office holders, you can tell they don't love it. And when we get a one week uh, in-state work week, you know, normally we are out in these four days a week, and then I'm working back in South Dakota two days a week. And then, you know, normally I shut it down on, on Sunday and spend time with the you know, church family. But uh, there are people who don't work hard back in the district those two days a week. Or when we get a, a spare week where we're not in D.C. at all that week, we're supposed to be working six days a week back in the district, they're not doing a lot of being out in public stuff. And it's almost like they're scared of the voters, of the citizens. I just have too much fun talking to real people. I mean, when you when you pay attention to politics through the lens of cable news, it seems angry. When you pay attention to politics through the lens of Twitter, it seems angry. When you actually go to a ball game, when you go to a music concert, when you go hang out at a fair, politics is not angry. People who are coming up to you, some of them are angry, but it is a real minority. There are more folks want to tell their story, we want to talk about why isn't one price this way, or hey, what can we do to move this prevent plant date, or hey, you know, what can we really be doing with Syria? I mean, people are inquisitive. They're curious. They, lo- they love their country. And a lot of that does not come across on cable news. You know, one thing that I thought was interesting during your last campaign cycle is that, and I saw this on uh, social media, so I, I hope I'm not uh, being too invasive here, but you would like sometimes give out your cell phone number to people. And I thought that just in terms of like 21st century, 21st century, like social mores, I thought this was like a really effective and intimate way to connect with voters. You know, first, do you have any like funny stories about any late night calls? And then second, um, and you may have just answered this, but why do you think it's important to stay connected with voters? 
Yeah, I don't. I mean, surprisingly, I don't have any stories of people really abusing it. I mean, you would think giving out your cell phone number to a lot of people, and I don't do it as much now as I used to because, not because people are mean, it's just because they'll call and they'll ask legitimate questions or they'll text me, and it's hard for me to make sure we get them an answer. I mean, again, we get 5,000 pieces of mail and email in the official office every month. But at least we've got a system to deal with that. I can make sure that I get people an answer. But when somebody leaves me a long, rambling you know, voicemail message, maybe when I'm out – but it's really important, right? Maybe it is their you know, sister-in-law is trapped in Belarus, and they she lost her passport, and they won't let her get through airport security, and can we help? Well, yes, actually, we can help. But if it's during a weekend where I'm camping with my sons and I'm off the grid, I mean, that person thinks they've reached out for help. And, you know, them calling my cell phone, is really not the best way to get them help. And it would be better if they reached out to the official team. So even if I'm off the grid for a Saturday night, we can get them some help. So I don't give it out as much as I used to, but nobody's ever abused it. I mean, South Dakotans are really, really good people. All right, this might be kind of a wonky political question, but I love the elevator pitch ad. I just think that is like such a genius political advertisement. It's sincere. Um, you know, it lets you make you know your elevator pitch. I mean, it's just a great idea. Who thought of that? How do you you know who came up with that, and why do you think it's effective? I guess. Well, and this is for people who don't know. This is back in 2010. I was running uh, for re-election to the Public Utilities Commission. And you're right; not many people know know the Public Utilities Commission. So you do need to have, I think, something that cuts through the clutter. And you're not—I mean, if you're running for governor, you're going to get eight or ten or fifteen TV ads. When you're running for PUC, you're going to have one, maybe two TV ads. And you're not really going to have a lot of money to put behind them. They're not million-dollar races; they're hundred-thousand-dollar races. So I think you want them to be memorable, and I think they need to capture the essence of what the candidate brings. And for me, I bring a ton of energy. I, you know, I, I love doing this. I mean, I love helping people. I love solving problems. And at its heart, that's what politics should be about. That's what public service should be about. So the elevator ad came together, as I think a lot of successful things do. It was a collaboration. Uh, I don't use uh, an out-of-state marketing firm. Um, Even in my congressional race, a lot of people will use a D.C. firm because I think these D.C. folks understand the congressional environment. I just always use Lawrence and Schiller. That's uh, that's a firm uh, out of Sioux Falls. Got a ton of great uh, Coyote alumni there. They they just know who I am, and they know how to tell this story. So we were trying to figure out a way to, to have this energy and this earnestness and this optimism that I that really is a part of who I am come across. And it was this idea of me kind of in a goofy way hanging on an elevator and poor staffs coming to the elevator to ride to the third floor. And here I am working them with a 30-second pit. It seemed honest and funny and it was really well received. Yeah. Um, you know, I checked your campaign page in preparation, actually, for this interview, and you said something on it, and we've kind of talked about it already. You said, I'm an optimist, and that's why, you know, I'm running for Congress. Are, are you still sticking to that? I mean, are you still optimistic about being able to accomplish your priorities? Well, the first eight or nine months in Congress, I enjoyed it more than I expected. I sort of feared that as a freshman in the minority, one out of 435, I would be entirely irrelevant. And I was, but I still felt like it was important to go. I mean, I didn't know how long it would take me to really be somebody who could move the needle out there, but I had an optimism that it could happen with hard work. It happened a lot faster than I expected. 
I mean, because of the passion that I've got for welfare reform, because of the passion that I've got for uh, production agriculture, you know, I was made a, a ranking member. That's the top Republican on the committee that oversees food stamps and the implementation of the 2018 Farm Bill. I mean, this is a, a huge assignment. I mean, there are 50 people on the Ag Committee, uh, but only five of them get to be the top Democrats and only five of them get to be the top Republicans on these subcommittees that do the real work of the committee. So for me to be one of those five top Republicans, just I did not know that could happen to a freshman. And we've passed legislation, and we've gotten amendments into bills, and we've been able to help real South Dakotans who call, and we're having a problem with the bureaucracy. We've been able to help navigate that. I mean, there is just I, in in ten months we have done so much more than I expected. So I think my optimism was maybe even not optimistic enough uh, for my first few months on this. I'll be honest; the last month has been harder. I mean, as immigrate as impeachment has just sucked kind of all of the oxygen out of the room, it has gotten harder to feel like, oh, this week we can go get something done for South Dakota. You know, and I was going to mention that, you know, you serve on the Education and Labor Committee, the Agricultural Committee. Um, you know, I was going to ask what you do in those roles. You, you maybe have kind of answered that. One question I wanted to ask, though, is that obviously agriculture has taken a pretty significant hit. You know, the last couple of years, we have trade difficulties. Just frankly, weather-related issues have been really tough. You know, yeah. What can Washington do to help agriculture through this time? Well, I think everybody understands that Congress can't make it rain uh, and they can't make it stop raining. But there are things that are an important role that, that, that Congress can do. I mean, you know, number one is uh, make sure that we've got market access. When uh, Americans grow their beans and their corn and their beef, they do a better job of that than anybody else on the planet. And so when they have access to markets, they can't. It's not only that they can compete; they can really win uh, in, a, in a surprisingly, not surprisingly, in a very strong showing. Ninety-five percent of the miles to feed in this world are located outside of the United States. So this is about making sure that we've got market access, and you know we are working hard on that. Uh, we are going to get USMCA, that's the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement, done in the next month. I believe that it's been kind of held up for politics, and I'm not going to point any fingers, but. We need to get this thing done. It's clearly better than NAFTA. It would increase agricultural exports from this country to Canada and Mexico by $2 billion a year. It would have a lot of needed upward pressure on price. And and for work on that, I mean, I work every single week on that. It's really, really important. But aside from trade access, we want to make sure that we've got predictability. And that is having a farm bill that just establishes the rules, uh, having it done on time. And, And Congress has done that. Uh, this is the first time in 2018 that a farm bill was passed on time in the same year that it was introduced, and it was strongly bipartisan. It got more uh, votes in the House and more votes in the Senate than any other farm bill in this country's history. We love to complain about how nothing in D.C. works, but frankly, in the ag arena, this is still a real stronghold of bipartisanship. You know, obviously, we're a state with a large Native American population. What have you been able to learn um, about Washington's role in, you know, in assisting the tribes here in South Dakota, and what more can be done in that area? Well, it is uh, hugely important. I mean, this is a constitutionally established relationship, government-to-government relationship. Uh, we we want to make sure we get it right. I mean, there is a lot of opportunity in Indian country. There's also a lot of despair. I mean, there have been a lot of mistakes that our country has made uh, in Indian country, we, we want to work to rectify some of that. And I think working together, you know, uh, tribal governments and our federal government, we, we, are, we are starting to make some real progress. 
Uh, it's something we spend a lot of time on in my office because we've got nine tribes. And it's something that's close to my heart. When you grow up in Pier and Fort Pier, you are right in the middle of four Native American tribes. I mean, you've got uh, uh, Crow Creek, Lower Brule, you've got Sound River, you've got Standing Rock. I mean, all of those within a very short drive. And so you're going to school with those kids. You're shopping with those families. Uh, it's a part of your community. I mean, my campaign manager uh, was a tribally enrolled member. My campaign attorney was a tribally enrolled member. We have, you know, tribally enrolled members, you know, on our state team and people who work on these issues on our D.C. team. And we're making some headway. I mean, I'll just give you one example, although I think we could, we could show a lot of them in the last 10 months. But there are three types of Bureau of Indian Education schools. Two of them qualify for uh, health insurance benefits through the federal employee system. The third type of BIE school doesn't qualify. There's just no reason for that disparate treatment, and it really messes up uh, the ability of that third type of school to deliver its, you know, its services at a disadvantage. So we've got a bill. It's got some momentum. We've had a hearing on it already, which is unusual and a big piece of success. I mean, we're trying to be a leader in these areas. We're going to keep doing it because it's the right thing to do. You know, the federal deficit is posting, obviously, some pretty high numbers. I think the latest story I, I read this weekend was, like, the national debt was over, like, $23 trillion, which just seems, you know, kind of crazy. You know, is this a revenue issue? Is this too many federal programs? What can, I guess, Washington do to get us back on track in terms of the budget? Well, everybody wants to point to kind of the bureaucracy, and there is room to cut there, don't get me wrong, but that is actually one area where... Congress has done a good job. If you uh, look at uh, discretionary spending uh, 10 years ago compared to today, it's actually lower today. Non-defense discretionary spending is actually lower today than it was a decade ago. Congress has done a pretty good job of holding the line on non-defense discretionary. And so now it's to the point where you know, well over 80% of our federal spending is not non-defense discretionary. It's our military it's Medicaid, that's health care for poor people, Medicare, health care for old people, it's Social Security, and it's interest on the debt. So if we really want to make a difference, if we really want to change this $23 trillion debt, which is entirely indefensible, we got to be willing to address those five issues. And that's where people get into a lot of political trouble. I mean, I'm willing to talk about uh, doing things like raising the retirement age, not for anybody who's 70 or 60, but I'm 43. For people my age and younger, we are going to live 20 years longer than our grandparents. Should all of those 20 years be in retirement? Or should I be working two or three years more to earn those 17 or 18 additional years of retirement? I mean, that, that actually makes the system a lot more sustainable. And, and those kinds of things I'm not scared of talking about, but boy, a lot of politicians are. Because when you talk about defense spending, Medicaid, Medicare, Social Security, what are you going to cut? I mean, it's not popular to talk about those cuts. You know, I wanted to talk about impeachment a little bit. I know that it's an issue that there's probably just daily updates. You know, what can you tell us about the upcoming you know, impeachment process that's been proposed? How will it play out? And what, if any, will your role in the process be? Yeah, I am not on the committees that have been able to be in the closed-door sessions. That's been frustrating. You know, really frustrating for me. You know, the, the stuff that I end up hearing is information that is leaked to the media, and that's no way to run a railroad. Uh, I mean, honestly, it, it, I would, for people who think that this process is going to those kind of leaks to the media, uh, well, again, they're selective leaks. It's not like they're leaking out stuff that's, you know, 
fair to both sides evenly. I mean, these are really selective leaks, and I think it's unfortunate, regardless of where you fall on the political spectrum. We should have a process that's fair, because when you're talking about removing a president from office and doing it within a year of the next election, it does seem like it's so momentous. We want to make sure that the process we use is unimpeachable, and I don't think it has been. And as far as the timeline going forward, I, you know, the speaker has, maybe not publicly, but I know a number of her members, she's talked about doing, having an impeachment vote in the next month. You know, I know this might be a difficult question, and this is more of a, a hypothetical. I mean, what to you would you consider to be impeachable conduct? Well, I mean, I'm sure there are, you know, dozens of things that would be impeachable. I and mean, then obviously, if, you know, this is outlandish. It's not like you're asking about this, but President killed somebody. I mean, that, you know, that's impeachable. I mean, if the president ordered somebody to be killed, that's impeachable. I mean, if the president, you know, was handed a, a, a bag of a million dollars worth of cash, uh, you know, to, to change an official decision, I mean, bribery, I mean, that's impeachable. If the, you know, president conducted, you know, uh, conducted treason, you know, the Constitution calls that out as a crime. And, you know, I don't know that we've got allegations that, that rise to those levels. Not clearly there are dozens of other things that somebody could do that would be impeachable. And we just got to wait till we see what the evidentiary record looks like. I mean, this is supposed to be a decision based on fact. And this is supposed to be an environment where the president is, like all accused, is innocent until proven guilty. You know, and you had kind of mentioned that this entire impeachment process has really kind of sucked the oxygen, you know, out of Congress as far as, you know, working on other issues. I think that's when I think about just the impeachment process, I just go like, well, however it turns out, like, how do we come back from it? Right. Like, how do we get back to running the government, you know, in a, in a more normal way? How do we get back to cooperating on, on issues that are important to all Americans? I mean, what's your take on that? Like, where do we go from here, I guess? It's a, it's a really important question, and it's one that, that most people in office are not paying enough attention to. We want to make sure that we don't blow the whole system up. And I know this is high-stakes uh, you know, poker, but it, we want to try to conduct ourselves in a way that leaves a path to come back and govern a country. That's what we're supposed to be focused on. You know, the voters put a Republican in the White House, Republicans in the Senate, and they put Democrats in control of the House. Now, listen, none of us, no individual has to be happy about that. But we need to remember that in the era of divided government, that means that nothing is going to get done unless Nancy Pelosi and Donald Trump can agree that something's for the good of the country. There's no other way. I mean, you can't design a scenario where our country gets a win without the Democrats and Republicans in the era of divided government agreeing on it. And, yeah. and I, that's not easy to remember. It's not easy to live. But we do want our country to get better over the course of the next year or two or three. Um, you know, I, I know we've probably taken up uh, too much of your time. I just got a, a couple of more questions. And just to kind of transition um, more back to public service, you know, what would you say to someone who is aspiring to be um, involved in public service or inspiring to be involved in politics? You know, what, what would you say to them? Well, if you want to do something then I think politics is a great place to be. But if you want, I mean, if you want to be something, then go look somewhere else. And, and what I mean by that is if you're more interested in the title and in the prestige, if you want to be something, if you want to be a United States senator, 
I think this environment is going to bring out the worst in you. If you want to do something, and, and that can be just about anything on the left or on the right, if you want to cure childhood hunger, now there's a lot of ways to attack that problem. You know, you could do that at the state legislature, you could do that at a nonprofit, you could do that in a corporation, you could also do that in the United States Congress. And so if you're motivated by mission, if you are trying to live a purpose-driven life, then I think instead of being worn down by politics, it's going to build you up because that mission is more important than you. It is more important than your political ambition. It is more important than the negative TV or newspaper spot. And so working in that arena is going to fill your bucket up. If it's all about ego, those things are going to drag you down. So make sure that you're getting into public service for the right reasons. It will serve you much better long term. You know, I've just got one last question for you, and it's a little bit more philosophical in nature. We usually like to ask most of our guests um, this at the end of the podcast. You've lived a you know pretty interesting life. You, you had talked about your you know early life and career. Um, obviously, I think now as a, a member of Congress, you get exposed to a lot of different people. You get to travel. Um, you get to see a different side um, you know of the government than I think probably most people get to see. At this point in your life, what do you know for sure? Well. What I know for sure is that anger is a good way to motivate people in the short term. But it's not, anger doesn't build, you know, abiding progress. Uh, anger doesn't build uh, something that will last and that will add real value over generations. And uh, there are a lot of people in the political sector, in the, in the political realm, who are motivated by anger. But the ones who really long-term build a better America, uh, don't have anger as their primary motivation. Uh, Congressman Johnson, thank you so much for the interview today. We really enjoyed having you on. Thank you for your service to South Dakota as well. We're proud to call you a Kaya. Um, we hope to see you at a football game or a basketball game here sometime soon when you get time. Absolutely. Go Yotes! Go Yotes! And thank you also to South Dakota Public Broadcasting who let us use the studio today. Thank you for listening to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. Listening is 100% of the grades. We hope you enjoyed the episode.